Good morning, another uh, Sunday live stream. Uh, again, we're hoping to return soon. Uh, if you're home and uh, or maybe visiting with someone this morning, together watching our live stream, open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 2 this morning. We're looking at chapters 1, 2, and 3 over the next six more weeks. It's an eight-week study, uh, really honing in on uh, the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So far, uh, we've learned that God has given this revelation, Greek word apocalyptic, this unveiling to Jesus Christ to give to his children, to the saints, through the angel by the apostle John. We learned from chapter 1, verse 9, that John has been exiled on the island of Patmos for boldly proclaiming Jesus and the gospel. This book is from and for Jesus. It's about his majesty, his glory, and how Jesus, the warrior lamb king, is coming again to reign and to rule. The prologue in chapter 1 declared a blessing on those, verse 3, who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, those who hear and who keep what is written in it. So this book was meant to be read aloud and meant to be accepted, but also kept and obeyed. This book was written, as I've mentioned before, not so that we can comb through the news uh, and try to figure out exactly what's going to happen in the end, but to strengthen believers who face suffering and death and to do so in light of the glorious truth of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and victory over sin, death, and evil. And we'll see that clearly in our text this morning. Therefore, we've said Revelation was written to encourage believers to overcome struggles and persecutions by holding on to their faith, trusting in Jesus, knowing that God is in full and sovereign control of all of history and that Christ will return to judge the world and reward those who remain faithful to him. We also learn from chapter 1 that John was to write down what Jesus shows him. To write down and to tell others and to send this letter, the book of Revelation, the epistle, the letter of Revelation, to seven literal churches. Chapter 1, verse 11 tells us who those churches are. The churches are Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Thyatira Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. There were, they were seven real churches with real people, with real struggles. But we also know that the number seven symbolizes completeness. So it was only not only for them in that day and that time, but it's for us in our day and in our time. The first letter we know was written to the church at Ephesus, the Ephesian church. And we learned last week that this, that this church was a, was a good church, was a strong church. Um, they, they held to the truth. They, they held to orthodoxy. They called out false teachers. And in the midst of their culture, which was a culture of idolatry and sexual immorality, they were patiently enduring and, and doing good works. Good works of the gospel, enduring uh, and bearing persecution and reproach for the name of Christ. And they were not grown, growing weary and doing good deeds. Sounds like a great church. But then we also learned from last week that Jesus had something to say to that church. That in pursuit of truth, in pursuit of good works, they had abandoned their first love. The love of Christ, which then, uh, which in turn choked out love for other people. So they were instructed to remember. They were instructed to rehearse the gospel. To remember the wickedness of their sins before a holy God. But then delight in the love, beauty, and glory, and forgiveness of the Savior who died an atoning death. 
who forgives all our sins and brings us into an eternal right relationship with God. Remember the gospel. Then repent, turn, and, 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 and return back to Christ. Be forgiven. Through the gospel, allow the gospel to reunite your love for him. Repent. Turn back to Christ. Be reunited. Uh, re- reunited. Just be inflamed again with the love of the gospel. And then he says, repeat. Do the works. Do the deeds you did before. This time, not as only a pursuit of truth, but out of grace, love, and truth. And he ended chapter 2, verse 7, to the letter to the Ephesian uh, and, and this is what John writes. Uh, Jesus writes to John, John, uh, Revelation 2 7. And to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The Ephesian church was to press on, to persevere, and in the end, they will eat of the tree of life. They will have eternal life. They will be back in the presence of God. The next letter written, as we'll look at today, was to the church of Smyrna. Turn with me again to Revelation, hear the word of the Lord. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, the infallible inspired word of God. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt. By the second death. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. So this letter to the church of Smyrna. So as we look at this letter together. We are going to look at it under three headings. Very simple. The forever Christ. The fearless church. And the faithful people. The forever Christ. The eternal reality of who Jesus is. This fearless church in the face of persecution. And the faithful people. Those who will continue on and conquer. Over persecution. Over death. Will then be given the crown of life. So first the forever Christ. Look with me at verse 8. We have the, the, the address. And to the angel... Of the church in Smyrna. Write this. So we learned last week that the word angel, angelos, could mean angel or messenger. Some say this is the pastor elder, the leader of an individual church, or maybe a human deliverer of the message. Uh, some think angel is just that, an angelic being sent by God, sort of like a, a guardian angel over the church. We're not sure. But the, the point is same. point is the same. I said this last week. This letter was written to the church, is given to them, through John, by Jesus, for them to listen up, to pay attention, to respond in faith and in obedience, right? This is not a letter um, that they should take this into consideration or have some vote, right? Jesus is speaking to the church, and the church is supposed to respond to the Lord, to the king, in faith and trust and obedience. Now, this letter was written to Smyrna City. The city is an interesting city. Let me just give you a little backdrop. As I said last week, each church... Each one of each local assembly, and that includes ours, right, finds itself in a, in a particular time in a particular culture, 
and, and they are called on to proclaim the unchanging truths of the gospel in a particular cultural context, in a changing world, really. Smyrna was located in modern Turkey, about 35 miles north of, of Ephesus. And like that city, it had a prosperous seaport town. Um, its wealth and prosperity led, uh, led uh, uh, kind of challenged Ephesus and the honor of being the best city in Asia Minor. Uh, I, I think Ephesus kind of won that debate, but they tried. It was a wealthy city, uh, the city of Ismar, I-S-M-I-R, today the third largest city in modern Turkey, is actually built on the rubble of Smyrna. It is said to be one of the most beautiful cities in Asia Minor at the time. In fact, the coins that they made in Smyrna, on the description of the coin, it said, first of Asia in beauty and size. Their harbor, they had a harbor as well, like like the Ephesians, uh, the Ephesus church. Uh, their harbor was landlocked and somewhat protected uh, on all sides. The city began at sea level, and very importantly, it climbed up this slope to a place called Mount Pagus, P-A-G-U-S. And as you stood on the, on the seaport, um, there was this unified pattern uh, about the um, architecture uh, that kind of blended in with the city. It was a beautiful place. And as you looked up, they called it uh, this golden street. They had this street or pathway that navigated through the city going up into the mountain, into this mountain of uh, Pegas. So they had stadiums there. They had libraries. had one of the largest public theaters. And from the harbor, you would look up and you would see this road winding through passing temples after temples after temples and shrines until you got to the top. And at the top, there was a shrine to Zeus, the god of the sky, lightning and thunder, ruler of all the gods of Mount uh, Olympus. And this, this, this roadway that led up to the mountain uh, was called in the city, the, the crown of the city. There's a couple of things also you need to know about Smyrna as we get into the text. Very important. Number one, Smyrna was a huge supporter of Rome. Even before Rome became a world power, um, as early as 195 BC, they entered, they, they erected this temple to the goddess of Rome. Smyrna then became a seat of emperor worship in 26 BC, while several cities in Asia were competing to honor Rome and building a temple to the emperor Tiberius. It was only Smyrna in Asia Minor that actually secured the privilege of building this monument, this temple. Now, under Domitian, the, the, the emperor of, of, of this day, when John was writing, if you remember, I had mentioned earlier, they actually had emperor worship was actually required. Once a year, all the citizens uh, were required to burn incense to the, to the altar of Caesar and proclaim, Caesar is Lord. They would receive a certificate. Yeah, we did our civil duty and everything would be fine. And now this law that was enacted by Domitian, the Caesar of the day, uh, did not target or single out God's people, as, as some would say, that you, in order to take, in order to, uh, uh, to be civilly disobedient, it has to be an attack on the church. That, not necessarily. This law was enacted for the whole land that Christians considered blasphemous and refused to do it. Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. The second thing we need to know that in Smyrna there was a large Jewish population. And the Jewish people were given permission by Rome to not partake in this burning incense Caesar's Lord ritual. 
But no such permission was given to the Christians. And therefore, within the context of this letter, very important, followers of Jesus Christ were being persecuted by Rome for not bowing down to Caesar. And there was a growing, also a growing hostility from the Jewish people who rejected the Messiah. And I'll get to some of that in a little bit as we move on. It got so bad that one of the famous Bishops, a, a martyr of the, of the, of the second century, uh, Polycarp, who was the actual bishop in Smyrna, was executed on February of AD 155. Little background. It's important. You'll see why. Now, as we, as with all the seven letters, if you look at the text, the verse, couple of verses, not only do we address the, who the church is written to, to the angel of Smyrna, but we find a description that is found in chapters 1 verses 12 through 18 a description of Jesus each one of the letters will have each one of the letters will have a certain description so look with me what it says in verse 8 the angel of the church of smyrna write these words right the words of the first and the last who died and came to life again it goes back to chapter 1 a description john sees the glorified christ he's the first and the last who died and came to life and if you think about it for a minute how fitting is that to this church those who are facing death, who, 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 who are being addressed here now by Jesus is the first and the last. The one who is dead and is now is alive. He's the first. Reminds me of Genesis 1 and John 1. In the beginning, before everything, God. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. Jesus is before all else. For before all else that ever was. He is also the last. There's nothing in all the universe that will endure longer than Jesus. He is before and after everything. And this identity, make no mistakes, is Jesus explicitly claiming divinity. This is a parallel statement to God the Father who says he's the Alpha and the Omega in chapter 1 verse 8. And and what's really important about this, the first and the last, and you need to know, is that in an Old Testament book, of Isaiah in chapters 40 through 48, those, those eight chapters, over and over, God makes a very clear and comprehensive claim to be the one and only true God. Four times in those chapters, God makes exclusive claims to his divinity based upon his unique status as the first and the last. Like in Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord Almighty of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Pretty clear. Jesus here, as the first and the last, identifies himself as being co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. Fully God, fully man. He goes on to say, who died and came to life. Literal translation, the one who became dead and is alive again. Think about that. The first and the last, the eternal God, before and after, no beginning, no end, died. Who died and came to life. How can that be? How does the eternal die? Who could imagine something like that? Could ever happen? But it did. Jesus Christ, the eternal God, entered into History, at a point in time, took on flesh and blood, 
was murdered and, and crucified on a Roman cross. He entered into time, space, and history for the very purpose of dying for our sins. That is the heart of the gospel. There is no categories in any religion, in any philosophy in the world that speaks of that kind of truth. The incarnation made it possible. Now, you say, well, that, that's just hard to understand. I know. We don't understand exactly how the incarnation took place, but we know that it did. And his atoning death and resurrection from the grave means that death has no power over him. He is greater than death itself. Let me say that again. His atoning death and his resurrection from the grave means that death has no power over him. He, Jesus, is greater than death itself. And given what the church in Smyrna faces, this reality is one of the things that must have been wonderful to be reminded of. And and their hearts and their minds must have rejoiced over this and helped them to remain faithful. The fact that he came back to life again had to be very energizing to the saints facing persecution and death. The one who died on Calvary's hills, on a Roman cross, conquered death and is alive. He died for sin, now resurrected the glorified God-man of the universe. Family, family, as as we face hardship, persecution, even death, Jesus is saying to them and to us, I was here before it started and I'll be here after it's all over. I transcend all of this and so will you because you're connected. You have union with me by faith. Many of us, I believe to be true, many of us over the past, uh, at least over the last few months, have probably thought about death more than the past several years combined. Jesus reminds them, and Jesus is reminding us this morning, that even though we may die due to persecution or any other reason, we will not experience anything that he hasn't experienced himself and has overcome. No matter what we're going through, Jesus says, I have been there. The Lord suffered the most unjust and severe severe persecution anyone has ever suffered, bearing the sins of man on the cross. Supreme suffering. I was dead and I'm alive. And this letter was written to Smyrna, to the church of Smyrna, to encourage them and to encourage us that Jesus Christ is the transcendent living one who died yet lives. And that he provides for his followers. You and I this morning, resurrection life when death becomes a reality. You know, courage, um, for the sake of courage, to to, to somehow just find it within yourself has has really no foundation. But courage, because we trust in Christ, we know that the tomb is empty. We know that he laid down his life for us and he was raised to life never to die again is solid rock courage. The forever Christ, the fearless church. I know your tribulation and I know your poverty, but you are rich. The pressures you and I face An experience, Jesus says, I know. I'm not just familiar, I know. I'm fully aware, I know the burdens, I know the crises, I know what you're going through. Nothing escapes me, I am the first and the last. 
Notice Jesus doesn't say to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Suck it up. Part of life. He doesn't say, he doesn't degrade them and tell them, you know what? If you had some more faith, you wouldn't be going through this. He doesn't belittle their experiencing of, their experience of suffering by offering some insensitive advice. By telling Jesus, excuse me, by, by Jesus telling the church in Smyrna that he knows personally their tribulation, he's not only reminding them of his presence with them, but I think it brings dignity and honor to their suffering. I know. I know your suffering. I know your tribulation. You know, one of the hardest things that we have to deal with going through hard times is being alone. Being alone. And if you're going through hard times, if you're in difficult times and you feel alone, I, I know it's hard to get out. It's difficult. Give us a call. We'll make it. We'll come to the house. We'll wait from outside. We'll do whatever it takes and whatever's necessary. Give us a call at the church. If you want us to swing by and just to see you and to pray with you, uh, it's hard to be alone. Jesus says, I, "Jesus is saying you're not you're not alone, man. You're never alone. I know what you're going through. I'm in you, the one going through it. And by linking together, if you notice the text, tribulation, poverty, uh, we can assume safely that it's not just poverty from normal, maybe economic conditions." But there was a confiscation of property in those days. There were those who were being kicked out of families, kicked out of jobs. The, the, the word poverty here is not just a, a general poverty that's used in the New Testament, but it's a denial of even the basics of life. We're talking about severe, really severe situation. These people were under. They were extremely poor. Because they stood, but because they stood by faith with Jesus, look what he says. I know your I know your tribulation, your poverty, but what? You are rich. Materially, you have nothing, but spiritually, you have everything. By telling the church in Smyrna that they were rich, Jesus is is saying, "Look, you need to redirect your evaluation of riches away from the worldly standards." And I want to remind you what really matters, what really makes you rich. If you do a quick uh, word search in the word riches or rich in the New Testament, uh, particularly in the epistles, you'll find an amazing array of a wealth of, of truth about the riches of Christ. I just want to give you a few, and I found these only in the book of Ephesians since we did the, uh, the church of Ephesus. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 118, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he gave us Christ. Chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Last one, Ephesians 3.8. To me, Paul writing, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, inheritance. John Piper writes this. God is rich in the sense that he himself is the infinite treasure of the universe. 
When Paul speaks in other places of the riches of God's grace, the riches of his kindness, the riches of his glory, this is the main thing. God freely giving himself in grace and kindness to us for our enjoyment of his own all-satisfying glory forever. When he speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ, not just riches that Christ gives, but the riches that Christ is. When Christ died, he bought and he became our greatest treasure, end quote. So when Jesus comes again, or when we go to be with him, all the wealth and riches that one can obtain in this life will cease to be of any value. The only thing that will matter is whether or not you have Christ. And if you have the gospel, you are rich indeed. Gospel wealth is yours if you trust Christ. Family, do we measure our riches by the fact that Jesus has reconciled and forgiven and brought us into a right relationship with God? That we are now a child of God receiving all the mercy and all the grace necessary, an abundance of grace, grace upon grace. John is not saying that if you have financial riches that you cannot be gospel rich. What he's saying is that if you consider your wealth, your riches, to what you have rather than on the treasures of knowing Christ, then you're not rich, you're poor. But if Christ is your treasure, no matter how poor you are, you are rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, I love this verse. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich in heaven's glory with the Father from all eternity... Yet for our sake, your sake, he became poor. He, he left glory. He came down to this broken world. That by his poverty, by his coming and his dying, we might become rich, rich in the gospel. Tribulation, poverty, and now slander. Verse 9b. And the slander of those. So I know your riches. I know your tribulation and your poverty. You're rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. All of Scripture needs to be taken in context. This one is no exception. Taken by itself, it may seem very anti-Semitic. We just finished our series in the book of Hebrews, and we titled it, Jesus is Better. There are those, including Staples, who does our banners, that thought that that was an anti-Semitic statement. Hebrews, Jesus is better. We had to explain to them the context that it was a book of the Bible. They didn't know, understandably. First, let me say it's a tragic thing to look at history and see how Christians have persecuted Jews throughout the century. That's why it's often hard to reach the Jewish people. One cannot read the works of Martin Luther and conclude otherwise, it shouldn't shock us. We're all sinners. We're all a work in progress. Some people who hate the Jews who claim to be Christians are not Christians. Some are. And yet, on the other hand, there were Jewish people that, who persecute Christians. It's the world we live in. And let's remember that John himself is a Jew. Jesus born to a Jewish mother. His apostles were Jewish, so obviously this can't just be said as an anti-Semitic statement coming from a Jew. Let's keep it in context. So the context tells us that in the day of this writing, Jewish people, again, had a pass to not worship the emperor. They had a permit not to engage. 
Christians, uh, particularly for several years after the resurrection, were considered to be a sect of the Jewish people. In Smyrna, in that day and that time, the Jewish people were persecuting Christians by telling the Roman government that the Christians were not a sect of Judaism. They were not Jewish in any way, and therefore they do not deserve the same exemptions as the Jewish people enjoyed. Christians, especially Jewish Christians, found themselves in an unfortunate alternative to either deny Christ and return to Judaism or prepare themselves for serious persecution at the hands of the Romans and the Jewish people. And when Jesus says, and the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, they're a synagogue of Satan, he means that they were racially Jewish, who claimed to be God's people but were not God's people. They were descendants of Abraham by physical birth, but not spiritual birth. In John 8, 44, Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews, you are the father, you are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Paul said in Romans chapter 2, 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. We taught through the book of Galatians recently, if you remember, chapter 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, been born again, you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. So Jesus identifies their true allegiance, those who gather in synagogues to the glory of Satan's kingdom, not God's. They, they persecution or their persecution toward Christians proved who they were serving. And, and, I, I, and I'm, I'm going to say something bold here and say, no matter, even if it's a church who is persecuting, hating, and killing, other people are working not for God, but for demonic forces. We learn from Acts and Galatians, we know that the Jews cause great opposition to the proclamation of the gospel. That's the context of this letter. Christians are never called to violently persecute people of other faith. Do not fear, verse 10. Do not fear what's going to happen to you, what you're about to suffer. Behold, listen up. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Those opposed to Christ, Romans and Jews alike, well, actually, the Jews are being used, those who oppose Christ, being used to persecute these people. That's the context. And they were thrown into prison. Behind all evil human leaders lurk this supernatural personal force of evil. The devil's about to do this. You see, the devil is using people to, to persecute and to do his bidding. All that goes, it goes for all those in darkness who hate and persecute and oppose Christians, whether it's individuals, whether it's churches, whether it's synagogues, whether it's other religions, whether it's governments. Persecution of Christians. He says, do not fear. Literally, stop fearing. It's already taking place. And he's saying, look, stop fearing. I know you fear uh, what's coming, but it's coming. I mean, you don't see any place here where he's saying, I'm going to take care of this. Don't you have no fear because I'll step in. I'll change what's going on. That's not what he says. And although he has the power and authority to change the circumstances, he says, I'm not. Some are going to prison. 
And you're going to prison. You know what? You're going to be tested. Your test will show your loyalty. Your test will show forth how loyal you are to me. To reveal your faith in me. To reveal your love for me. We face testing all the time. Maybe not like this. When hardship comes, we're tested. Will I trust God? Will I fear? Will I worry? Will I trust God? Will I rely upon him? His strength, his provision, his wisdom. And when good times come, we're tested. Will I obey his word? Will I trust him even when things are going well? We are tested when the wisdom of this world contradicts or even offers great wealth and great prosperity and great pleasure. Will I say no to the world's pleasure and yes to Jesus? Will I trust him in his word and what he's declared to me? They're being tested. Now, I don't know about you. I'd be like, thanks, Lord. No, thanks. I've been tested enough in my life. If you could go just go test somebody else, that would be great. Uh, you know, that, that's probably how Job felt, right? But God doesn't change his mind. Because testing shows forth our faith. And not only that, when the church is under persecution and tested, the church is not only purified, but the power of Christ is made real in that church's life. There's an old and famous statement, well known to the early history of the church. It says this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. A lot of truth in that statement. Tribulations, affliction, suffering, and opposition does not usually stop the church from growing. Actually, the opposite. It fuels growth. Now the warning about 10 days. He says you're going to jail, maybe 10 days. Ten days could mean literally ten days. Ten days could be symbolic of a period of time. But I think the important thing is it's not forever. I think he's telling the church it's not forever. There's going to come a point where persecution is going to end. It will not last forever. So fear not. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. Psalm 56.1. Jesus says in John 16, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You know, in 2 Corinthians, I love this verse. I love this, this book, 2 Corinthians. But in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is telling the church that he's been inf- afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Then he goes on a few verses later. He says, don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, really, Paul, everything you've been through is light and momentary? The affliction, the beatings, the, 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 the severe beatings that you got is, is light and momentary affliction. Well, in light of eternity. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Jesus is saying to this church, man, there's not going to be relief. There's actually going to be more suffering. But be a fearless church. Why? I'm the first and the last. I've died and I'm alive. I know your suffering. I know your enemies. I will be with you through your suffering. Therefore, you can be free from fear. 
the forever Christ, the fearless church, and finally the faithful people. Verse 10a, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The persecution they were facing may result in death. Maybe you don't that just for believing in Christ, for not bowing down and worshiping other gods, they could be killed. Now we don't understand that kind of suffering in our country, that kind of persecution in our country. But thousands of people at this very second around the world are suffering persecution unto death. You need to know that this morning. Websites like Open Door USA or The Voice of the Martyrs, uh, Persecution.com, tell stories upon stories of people today around the globe being murdered for their faith, being kicked out of villages, kicked out of houses with no food and no place to go. Just yesterday, this was the headlines to the Open Door website. A woman in India watches her sister be dragged off by Hindu nationalists. She don't know whether she's alive or dead. A man in a North Korean prison camp is shaken awake after being beaten unconsciously. The, begin, the beatings begin again. A woman in Nigeria runs for her life. She escapes, finally, the Boko Haram, Haram who kidnapped her. She's pregnant. She's turning home, and her community rejects her and her baby. A group of children are laughing and talking as they came down to the church's sanctuary after eating together. Instantly, many of them are killed children. By a pipe bomb blast. It's Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. I tell you all this to remember to pray. To remember to pray for our brothers. You can look on those websites and pray for those who are suffering who, under the people who are doing the bidding of Satan. But also, it begs us this question. Me this question. What would you and I do if we were persecuted unto death? Think about that. What would you and I do if we were persecuted unto death? Are you really ready to receive this kind of persecution from the hands of evil men, evil women, without backing down, showing your love and your faith to Christ to the end? Again, John Piper, if they hate us, he loves us. If they imprison us, he will set our spirits free. If they afflict us, he refines us in the fire. If they kill us, he makes it a passageway to paradise. They cannot defeat us. Christ has died. Christ has risen. We are alive in him. What did Jesus say in Matthew 10, 28? Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What Jesus is saying is many may kill the body, but they can't kill and destroy the soul. Many men could kill the body, and in the, prog- pro- and in the process, immediately, if you're in Christ, you'll be ushered into his presence. And when Jesus says to them, look at this, look at this last verse. If you endure to the end, I will give you the crown of life. If your faith is real, if your faith perseveres, if your faith lasts, I will give you life. Remember who he's talking to now. It's very important. The church, the gathered assembly, gathered together in this city with this famous golden street that spiraled up to Mount Pegas that was called what? The, the crown of the city. The people of the city spoke out of its crown. He had the Lord's message to the suffering saints in Smyrna, in that city itself, 
They say, you got a crown which everyone may glory in, the builder and the beholder, but I will give you actually the crown of life, the gift of the risen Christ to those who are faithful even unto death. You receive eternal life. And this crown that he's speaking to is, is, is what's called the, the, uh, uh, the, the victor's crown. Stephanos, not the diadem, not the one that you wear when you're loyalty. It's not a crown of position. It's a crown awarded to the athlete who finishes the race. In other words, it was the winner's crown. And the church, he's saying to the church, listen, no matter how much you're persecuted, no matter how much you're hated, no matter how much poverty you are dealing with, you are a winner in the end and you receive the crown of life. Now, I'm always reminding the church how important it is to be in community. I want to point something out, though. Uh, I've always, you know me, that's my heartbeat is, is community. And, and this is about the church and community. But look with me at verse 10. I just want to point something out to you. It says in verse 10, do not fear what you, singular, are about to suffer. People are going to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you, plural, into prison. In other words, the church is gathering. Some of you are going to prison. That you, plural, may be tested. And for 10 days, you, plural, will have tribulation. He's speaking to a group of people that will go through this process. But then he says, be faithful, singular. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you, singular, the crown of life. We gather in community to encourage one another. We gather in community to strengthen one another. We gather in community to help one another persevere. But there may come a time, brothers and sisters, there may come a time when you are alone, you have to make that decision in the quietness of your own soul. Stand in faith and deny your pleasure. Stand in faith and be persecuted or shrink back and fail the test. The faithful people will receive the crown of life. What will our answer be? We see the end here. Jesus said in the end of the church, the end of the letter to the Ephesians last week, if you have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. And yet here Jesus says, He who has an ear, verse 11, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, same thing. But then he says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Even even though Jesus is speaking, he's saying the Spirit is working in your hearts. And whoever is victorious to the one who conquers, the one who stands firm, firm to the end, although persecuted and suffering, you will not be hurt by the second death. It's emphatic in the Greek, which means you will not in no way, in no how, will you be hurt. Everyone is going to 100% suffer and experience physical death unless Jesus comes back. It's 100%. The first death for those in Smyrna might be martyrdom. They may die because of their faith. But even then, they will be victorious. They will be conquerors because they would not face the second death. The second death is eternal death. That phrase, second death, occurs three times in Revelation chapters 20 and 21. It is the destiny of those who reject Christ, who reject God's salvation in Christ. And it's described in terms of being tossed in or being in the lake of fire. The first death is being separated from the soul. 
your soul separated from your body. But the second death is being separated from God from in eternity in what the Bible talks and describes as hell. That's the second death. The saints, God's people, may suffer physical death at the hands of persecutors, but they never will be separated from God himself. There's no fear for those who trust and persevere of the second death. They will be untouched. There will be no hurt caused to them. Here's the bottom line. Everyone is going to be resurrected. Those who've trusted in Christ, who believe on Christ, will be resurrected and the second death will have no harm on them. But those who reject Christ, those who want to be their own saviors, their own lords, will be in the end resurrected and then the second death. Eternal separation from God. I mentioned Polycarp. Listen to what happened to him. Uh, translated by Lightfoot. This is a description of what took place at his martyrdom. When the magistrate pressed him hard, Polycarp, they said to him, swear the oath and I will release thee. Revile the Christ. Polycarp said, four score and seven years I have been Christ's servant and he had done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But on his persisting, he said, swear by Caesar, swear by the genius of Caesar. If, and, and Polycarp answered, if thou supposest vainly that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, thou art ignorant of who I am. I am plainly a Christian. The council said to him, I have wild beasts here and I will throw thee to them except thou repent. Not turn to Christ, but repent and turn to Caesar. But Polycarp said, call for them. For the repentance from better to worse is a change not permitted to us. But it is a noble thing to change from untowardness, from bad fortune, yet to righteousness. Then the proconsul said this, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire. If thou despisest the wild beast, unless you repent, turn to Caesar. And Polycarp said this, thou threatenest that fire which burneth for a season, and after a little while it is quenched. For thou art ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why delayest thou? Come, do what thou wilt. End quote. Unbelief says, the world is all there is. Judgment will never come. And when the world is all there is, you will cling to it with all you have. And when anything threatens this life, it will be met with great fear and great anxiety. But when this life is seen from the perspective of the risen, resurrected King Jesus and the gospel, there'll be concern, genuine concern about life. But when eternity is its final destination... Fear will not consume us. I said this before and I'll say it again as we close. I think the scriptures teach this. That the more we grow in our relationship with Christ. The more we be conformed into his image and likeness. The more we understand his love and grace and his mission and the gospel. The more the world will have a lesser grip on our souls. The more we will desire to be with him. To live as Christ to die as gain will be our motto will be our battle cry. 
So let me ask you, and we'll close right now. Does Jesus' words to the church at Smyrna encourage you this morning? Think it through, pray it through, read it through. How does Jesus' eternality, his death and glorious resurrection from the grave help provide comfort to you this morning to overcome fears and anxieties? Are we living, really living in the implication of the resurrection of Christ? I hope so. I hope you can find great hope and encouragement to what Jesus said to the church of Smyrna and what Jesus is saying to us today. Trust him, family. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for this letter. And God, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted. That they remain faithful to you. And that the mission, the, the, the gospel will be proclaimed. And that what people use for evil, you will turn it for good. And God, we pray that as your children here, we will trust you in the midst of all things. We will love you, we will serve you, and we will give you the glory. And Father, I just want to lift up uh, this prayer to you as well. Those may be listening today who don't know you. Father, they would trust Jesus. That he lived the perfect life, a life there is no way they are going to live. And he died a grueling death on their behalf, in their place, for their sins, bearing the wrath and punishment that they deserve, only to receive forgiveness if they call upon you. And I pray that many will call upon you now to acknowledge your sin and to place your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, who died for your sin and rose from the dead, and therefore not only to be reconciled with the Father, but not, but also to escape the second death. So, Father, use your word, your spirit, your glorious Son to bring honor and glory to you in their salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.